welcome to the She Talks Health Podcast, your source for information about all things women's hormonal health. I'm your host, Sophie Shepard. I'm the founder of She Talks Health and the co-creator of the 12-week Empower Her group gut and hormone program. I'm a certified functional health coach and a holistic menstrual health educator. This podcast was created to give you clarity about how to take control over your hormonal health using safer, natural options. I created this podcast to cover the widespread and complex health issues plaguing women today. From the rise of infertility to the epidemically high numbers of women with autoimmune disease to menstrual cycle problems, digestive issues, anxiety, weight gain, food sensitivities, mental, emotional, and energetic imbalances, and so much more. If there's a topic that you need answered, I encourage you to write us at podcast at shetalkshealth.com and we will try our absolute best to cover that subject. My greatest mission in life is to help women radically change their health and their lives by teaching them how they can use their hormones as their superpowers. So with that in mind, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the She Talks Health Podcast. This is your host, Sophie Shepard, founder of the She Talks Health Podcast and She Talks Health. And I'm really, really excited to be recording this episode today about how to take back control of your health and understanding what epigenetics is. We're going to be talking a lot around how we can shift our nervous system out of fight or flight. We're going to be talking about how to shift our negative thoughts and understand where they're coming from, and the importance of addressing trauma, and of course, reducing toxic burden. All of these things help us to take back control of our life, and we have an amazing expert to walk us through that here today, and that is Lynn DeMastro Thompson. She is a certified hypnotherapist. She's a mind-body medicine practitioner using the healing systems of body talk and body intuitive, which is really cool. You guys, if you don't know body talk and body intuitive, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about it today. It's incredible work. She's also a speaker and author of an Amazon bestseller. It's called you are not your diagnosis, which everyone who's listening to this podcast can definitely relate to. And Lynn holds a master's degree in somatic psychology, and she's completed additional specialized training in biofeedback, therapeutic yoga, Reiki, and she has an incredible story. So I really want to start with that story and welcome Lynn to the She Talks Health podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat today. I'm so excited to talk to someone who's so well trained in this connection, the, you know, the body, mind connection, trauma connection, all these things that I have personally been finding in my work to be so important. And I, I literally just before this not realizing because everything's so synchronized, right? Everything's always happening for a reason. I made a reel that was about like, let me reintroduce myself. And I said, like, I used to think that healing was just about nutrition. And now I realize how much everything we're going to talk about today is truly part of the whole picture when it comes to coming back from really significant health issues. So I wanted to start with your story because you have an incredible story about how you ended up here. Could you tell us about that? Your yeah. Journey? So my journey started in my mid twenties. I was 25 and I was in grad school pursuing a completely different career path. So I was pursuing a PhD in history, thought I wanted to be a professor. 
And I was kind of miserable in that program, like from the very beginning, I, I was, you know, had this internal question of like, what am I really doing here? But I dismissed that for a while. And so kind of fast forward three years into that experience, and I was scheduled to have elective surgery in the summer of 2004. So wasn't sick, was going to actually have a breast reduction. So it was something I actually really wanted to do. And I had all of the, you know, pre-op appointments, went in, got all marked up the day before and had them draw labs. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call the night before my surgery from my surgeon. And he said, I got your pre-op blood work back and something looks off. And he was trying to be really reassuring at first and saying, you know, I want you to just go back to the lab because sometimes things happen, you know, like errors in how it gets processed or a switch sample, like don't freak out yet. So run back over to the hospital and get a phone call back probably an hour later saying, yeah, it's not a lab error. I can't do surgery on you. Just go see your primary doctor as soon as you can. And I was like, whoa. You know, going from just thinking, here I am having this surgery, which I was a little bit nervous about at surgery, of course, to like, can't do surgery. And he didn't really give me any other information of what looked wrong. Wow, that's really scary. So I think it was a very sleepless night from my memory, you know, just like, what the heck just happened to me? You know, my life just kind of took this huge turn. And so that started this whole process of going to the primary doctor who ran more tests. And I, then the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from a doctor I've never met. He introduced himself and he said, how are you feeling? And I'm like, um, I'm kind of freaked out because doctors you don't know don't normally just call you on the phone. I mean, doctors don't normally even just call you on the phone most times, right? Yeah, they usually just leave a, leave a message or a voice note. The amount of stuff I've been told that is wrong with me on a voice, on a voicemail is probably criminal. So, right, yeah. you know, An or they send phone you, phone. send you a message through some digital system or, you know, so I yeah, was like, sure, who, sure. who are you? Why are you calling me? And he said, well, if you're not having any symptoms and I was so shocked, I didn't know what to say of like symptoms of what would be the question now I would have asked, you know, with my, my brain looking back on it. He said, then come meet me at the hospital tomorrow. And if you have any symptoms, come to the hospital tonight. And I was like, okay, you know, just kind of basically went into a trauma response of just like shutting down and like, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Cause I didn't even know what to ask or what to say. Wow. I was so, so scared. Dramatic. Yeah. And so I made it through another very sleepless night, kind of freaking out of like, you know, did the muscle twitch? Was that a symptom? You know, like the, the constant scanning of your body because you feel like, what am I even supposed to be paying attention to? Wow. Go to the hospital and meet with him and then starts the whole diagnostic process of other specialists coming in, more tests. They said, we think you clotted off the veins that drained the liver. This doctor that had called me was a gastroenterologist. And so I was like, okay, that shouldn't happen. You know, so he said, we have to figure out why you clotted off these veins. And so oh. they did a whole bunch of tests, um, including a bone marrow biopsy or attempting to do one the first time and couldn't even do it because the doctor who was trying to do it just said, oh, you're just going to feel some pressure and I'm going to give you this little local injection to numb the area. And it was not that experience. If anybody has ever had a bone marrow biopsy, for most people, it's, it's very painful. Excruciating. I've heard it's horrible. 
you know, they're literally going into a bone is something that, that shouldn't be happening. And he said he couldn't continue that doctor because I just was like in so much pain. I was basically screaming for him to stop. Oh my gosh. Wow. So much trauma. Emotional. So much trauma. Physical. Yes. And yes. now you still don't know what's wrong. Right. So I get sent to actually a different hospital because I was in a smaller city in California and they said, you know, we know we need to open back up these veins that drain your liver, but, and we know what the procedure is, but we've never done it at, at this particular hospital before. So we want to send you somewhere where they've done it before, which I was like, yeah, I think I'd like not to be the first, <laughs> you know, I'd like to go somewhere where they've done this. So they moved me up to San Francisco to a hospital there and did the procedure to open the veins. They did a bone marrow biopsy again, this time giving me way more pain medication so I could at least somewhat tolerate it. And that was about, I was in the hospital for about 10 days before they finally came up with a diagnosis. And so the diagnosis? So the diagnosis at the time was chronic myelogenous leukemia. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was pretty much my reaction, you know, hearing the doctor say that in the hospital, you know. And you, you were in leukemia. grad school, so you must have been in your 20s. Yep. I was in my mid-20s. Whew. So your whole world is just completely turned upside down at this point. And you yep. have been completely traumatized through this entire process. <laughs> yes, very much so. It's, I've done so much healing over the years of all of the traumatic elements of that, of feeling like the human guinea pig, you know, was definitely a big part of it. And I'm sure anybody who's been through medical testing can relate to that feeling of, you know, being po- poked and prodded and they'd never really had somebody with what was going on with me. So it was like a teaching hospital and everybody came came in my room and felt my belly, you know, I had this huge distended belly because the liver wasn't draining and all this fluid built up and I looked like I was six months pregnant. Oh my goodness, Lynn. Wow. And I would love to come back to a personal story around that, but I would love for you to finish your story and what happened next because you're still here. I'm still here. And actually, so there was a total plot twist of the whole story, which was I, I was being treated for that, for leukemia. Luckily, not chemotherapy. It was a specific type of leukemia that they had the medication, which in some ways was kind of like chemo in a pill because it had a lot of the nausea side effects and stuff like that. So I was being treated for that. I went back to the doctor who had told me that the bone marrow biopsy was just going to be pressure, you know, the one who I now look at as having tortured me. And, you know, so he starts following me. They put me on this medication. I'm nauseous a lot of the time. I'm dealing with all these problems. But he keeps saying, well, I'm looking at this lab test and it looks like the medication is working. And so in my mind, I'm like, well, why do I feel like I'm just getting worse and worse and worse? I declined a lot over the course of about a year, year and a half. I got very, very thin. Like I went from being somebody who probably could have lost maybe, you know, 10, 15 pounds and been a nice, healthy weight to somebody who was way underweight. You know, you could see see lots of bones. You know, some people thought I think I was on some sort of a diet. (laughs) People were like, don't lose any more weight. And I'm like, this is not a weight loss diet. This is eating things and not being able to, you know, maintain a weight. Can we just pause for one second and talk about how that's also a trauma? (laughs) Because (laughs) when I had SIBO, I lost a ton of weight. And I didn't mean to, I just, I couldn't absorb my food. Right. And the amount of people that were like, 
you're really skinny or like, don't lose any more weight. Or like, if you lose any more weight, I'm going to see right through you. I learned in that experience, it doesn't matter if you're perceived as overweight or underweight. It's never appropriate to comment on someone's weight because you have Very no true. idea what they're going through. Very and true. That you really trigger, that actually triggered body dysmorphia and eating mm. issues for me that I never had, even through everything else I'd been through because I was so conscious of how I was being perceived in my weight. Man, okay, so now you're now you're dealing with this, okay? Right. And the doctor's saying the medication is working, but you're right. like it's terrible. Right. And I would say, like I, I remember every, you know, interaction with him, he would always say, Well, you know, how are you feeling? And I would say, I feel terrible. You know, I'm like, I'm losing all this weight, like I'm tired. I, you know, I listed off all of the things that were not going well for me. And his reaction was very, very bizarre to me. He would always say, you look great, which was at the same time people were telling me, don't lose weight. So I'm like, why are you saying that? It's not flattering to say that to somebody who honestly knows that they look like a human skeleton. You should be acknowledging what I'm saying is important here and saying like, well, why? This medication is supposedly working why is she actually like getting worse? Why does she look so terrible? Why is she losing too much weight? And he never did that. And so I kept asking my primary doctor for a referral because of course, you know, in the medical system, you can't just refer yourself to specialists most of the time. So I kept saying, can you send me to a different hematologist? Please send me to a different hematologist. And he would say, oh, but he and I went to medical school together and he's the best in town. And I was like, what? This guy is the best in town? Like, huh? Wow. Wow. That's even a, a new level of medical gaslighting. Yeah, exactly. That was the word like, that was just coming to my mind. It's definitely. like a friendship medical gaslighting. Like, Oh God, that's so gross. Okay. And I did eventually from that doctor get an apology, not from the hematologist, but from, from that doctor, he did apologize for what he had done when he found out kind of as it all unfolded and the, the reality of basically what was a misdiagnosis came to light. Um, what? You were misdiagnosed? Yes, I was wow. misdiagnosed. So it took three years to basically get to that point when I kept saying, give me a referral somewhere else. I actually went back to the hospital in um, San Francisco where I had been initially diagnosed to go to like an outpatient clinic and try and go to them like, why am I not getting better? I get to that appointment and that was its own shit show of they open up the file folder and it's like an empty manila file folder. And I'm like, I was in your hospital for 10 days. Why don't you have any records on me? Because they were just like, well, what can we help you with? And I'm like, why don't you have my medical records? What? Yeah. And oh you would gosh. think that, you know, somebody makes an appointment in a clinic, you would look up within that medical system, like, have we ever seen this patient before? I was kind of in the age where things were starting to be more digital. So I would have thought they could have looked me up in the computer and pulled up a whole bunch of records. I think I had an hour, hour appointment. Maybe it was only half an hour. I don't remember how long we spent the whole time, my parents and I filling in this doctor on my history. And then it was like, by the time that was done, like, okay, well, your time's up. I was like, but I'm here to ask you why I'm not getting better. And I just wasted my whole time. Wow. Oh my gosh. This so it seems like the story just gets worse and worse. So it, it was living a nightmare for three years, for sure. The medication wasn't working because you didn't actually have leukemia. So 
correct. Who finally said to you, really like, you're good, you just don't have to take this? Or like, it's actually this other thing that you have to do something else for? Like, what, It turned out it to result? be something else. So oh, wow. Okay. I left graduate school three years later, and I knew for a while that I wanted to leave the program I was in. And I knew part of the reason I was like hanging on for a while was that was where my health insurance was. And I was in this like, there's this web, so to speak, of I need health insurance. I can't get health insurance unless I get a job. I'm not healthy enough to get a job. So I was just kind of like on basically a medical leave of absence, but I could stay in my program and they would still give me insurance. So I had to keep working to get myself healthy enough to be able to leave the program, go get a job, any job with insurance would do. So I finally got to that point about three years later. As soon as I left that system and I, you know, got different health insurance, got a different primary doctor, I said, please send me, a, give me a referral to a different hematologist. I cannot see this doctor anymore. And she said, sure, here, pulled out her little pad, wrote me somebody else's name and, you know, a referral and went to see that guy. And I brought in a stack of medical records, probably three inches thick. I, everything that I had, because I didn't want to repeat of anything else, like relying on other people to have my medical records. I was like, I will hand carry these to you so that you have what you need to start looking at. He starts flipping through them in this appointment. And he's like looking at it and he goes, I don't think you ever had chronic myelogenous leukemia. <laughs> just, you know, so many emotions. Like if I put myself back in that moment, like I was so relieved that I had somebody that finally listened to me. And then I was so angry at the same time. Like, this is what I've been telling you for three years. Why am I not getting better? Why will no one listen to me? Oh my gosh, that's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking and an unnecessary trauma that you, traumas that you had to yes. go through. And this week I kind of had like a realization of some of my connection things. I was right back in that place of really being angry that mm. no one had caught it and no one had helped me. Right. And the information was there. And I really feel like that's, it's just a hard place to be, you know, when you feel that way, because it's not helpful necessarily oh. to be angry, but it's like, how can you not? <laughs> how could you not be angry? I mean, you wasted three years of your life feeling terrible and for like going what purpose? From yeah. yeah, for what purpose? And to be not listened to and bounce from doctor to doctor and all these things. And so, was this primary care physician finally, finally the person or was able to tell you what it actually was? It was a hematologist. So a hematologist. I thought, yeah, it was a referral to a different hematologist, and he he speculated in that first appointment what it was, but he said, of course, I can't tell you for sure until we run some more tests, because of course that's how it works, right? You know, it's like I have an idea, but I have to confirm this idea with more tests. So he did more tests and he confirmed what he had suspected to be the case. And, and the different diagnosis was a blood disorder called polycythemia vera, which I had never heard of. Most people have probably never heard of it. It's basically a disorder where my blood makes too many of all the cells. So my blood is extra thick with white cells, red cells, and platelets. Oh my gosh. So it's a blood related disorder and it's not any sort of leukemia. And so is there... It's sort of, it technically is in the leukemia family, but it's okay. not like, it's not a, you know, the seriousness of chronic myelogenous leukemia versus mm -hmm. this. It's like different. And of course it's different treatment. For... Different treatment. Right. Oh my gosh. So were you able to feel better and get yes. um, the help you needed after that? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So we switched medications and the other medication didn't have all of the same nasty side effects with the nausea and, you know, all of that sort of stuff I was dealing with. 
They also started doing therapeutic phlebotomies, which is basically kind of like donating blood, but they don't actually give your blood to anybody else. They just throw it away. Like they're like thinning your blood because you make too much of the cells or something. Yeah. So yeah, if you go back to old times, I guess that's what they were doing with leeches, right? Right. I'm thinking like leeches are like cut your your arm open because they thought that that would like lead you. Yeah. Yeah. So literally that's, that's something that's, you know, part of treatment for certain things now. It's just done, you know, in a more medicalized way where they put an IV bag and attach that and take off a bag of blood. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you have the diagnosis and then I guess, I mean, we have a lot to talk about today. (laughs) I would love to kind of talk about how this morphed into the work that you do now, because it sounds like you and I have a very similar thought around, I guess, questioning and also understanding that just because someone says that you're going to have something for the rest of your life doesn't mean it's a a death sentence or a life sentence or anything like that. Like there's, there's ways to support your body through something. I know that that can be a lot of the people that are listening are dealing with something like that, like PCOS, Hashimoto's. Like I was told, yeah, you're always going to have to be on this medication. You're always going to be this type of person. Um, you're always going to be labeled with this diagnosis. And I know a lot of what you do is helping people understand that they can affect change in their health through the way they think about things. So how did you end up doing body talk and body intuitive work and the somatic psychology work? Was it just through this, like I needed something else or? So kind of, I started dabbling in more alternative approaches to healing through that time period, through that three years, because I, at first I was just like, I am such a nervous wreck. My nervous system is, I'm having panic attacks. I don't know how to cope. So what I had done, I think it was about maybe a year and a half into this journey, I started going for biofeedback therapy. So I started, you know, getting hooked up to sensors and learning how to regulate my nervous system. And I was like, this is really helpful because I learned that I could at least calm myself down. Like I couldn't change what was going on in the bigger picture with my health, but I was like, at least when I'm freaking out, I can learn how to do certain breathing techniques, how to kind of re-regulate my system. I would love to talk about that, what you found useful because shifting from fight or flight to the parasympathetic is so important for healing. I mean, we can't really heal anything if we're, (laughs) if we're not in rest and digest and reproduce part of our nervous system. And it's been going on for years, but I feel like this week in particular has been interesting. I feel like a lot of my clients have been dealing with more stress and like instead of talking about nutrition or the supplements they're on for their gut health, really the conversations have been about getting them out of fight or flight because so I don't think we're really taught how to deal with this level of stress. So what did you find useful? What do you tell your clients if they're in panic, chronic freeze, what can we do to get, get ourselves out of that? So kind of what I learned a lot through biofeedback and then kind of as I started studying yoga as well is just how tremendously powerful a tool our breath can really be. You know, when we learn how to just slow down our breathing and breathe in certain ways, it can change what our heart rate is doing. It can change like so many things. That was where I started out with clients was really empowering people with a lot of those tools when when I began my business, because I was like, this is key, right? To be able to switch out of being like running around with a chicken with your head cut off to like, okay, I can like calm down and maybe there's crazy things happening around me, but I can actually find some internal calm and, and switch, as you said, out of that fight or flight state. 
where we can't heal anything. Oh, I love that. The breath work is so important because I think, you know, what's nice about the, what you're saying and what I feel like I've been saying a lot recently is that we have to give power back to people because what you experienced is so disempowering. You're kind of stripped of the trust of the medical system. You're, <laughs> you know, you're traumatized, you know, you had all those triggers and then, you know, that happens on other scales for people. Like they're fired from their job or they're left by their partner or their parents didn't care for them or you know, I had trauma, medical trauma, but it wasn't as severe as right. what you went through. Or we're just trying to be so uh, super women or, you know, <laughs> we're trying to keep, keep up with everything and it can be exhausting and, and we're just kind of stuck. And so I love that with breath work, it's something free. It's like a free tool That's to right. really coming back to your own body and being with yourself in that mm-hmm. sense. Very much so. And I think it's something that's so overlooked too, right? I mean, we just don't think about our breath unless, unless somebody sometimes reminds us, like, have you paid attention? Or, you know, I know sometimes if I'm upset, my husband will sometimes say, take a deep breath, or I'll say that to him. You know, it's like, sometimes we need that triggering of somebody outside of us saying, hey, calm down, take a yeah. deep breath. Hey, breathe <laughs> from your belly and not from your chest. Like, right. Whatever. Yeah. So, okay. So breath work was a huge part for you. And would you actually mind sharing with everybody what biofeedback is? Because there's probably people who don't know what that term refers to. Sure, sure. So basically you're hooked up to all these different sensors that get fed into a computer. And then on the screen, you can see what's happening. So like there's a sensor that measures your breathing and you can see, you know, it goes around your belly. And if you're breathing deeply into your belly, then you'll see the pattern of the inhale and the exhale. It can measure your heart rate. So you can see, you know, there's different patterns of a lot of the work that the Heart Math Institute does is about yes. heart rate coherence. And so you can see that like your, if your heart rate looks organized and has like some sort of a pattern on the screen, then you're in a better state than if your heart rate is just like all over the place and and no coherence. Thank you for explaining that because heart math is one of those things that's on my list of trainings to do. It's like, you know, I have like a laundry list right now. I'm in a biology of trauma class and neurochemistry. Like I'm always taking more classes and I was like, I'd love to learn more about heart math because it seems to really help people. But I honestly didn't understand that part. Well, what is it that you're looking for? So you're looking for your heart rate being more consistent or organized it sounds like. Right. There's like a kind of a pattern, you know, the way the sensor will measure it. It's like, you can see it looks like organized, like there's kind of a, a certain pattern to the, the acceleration and deceleration versus when you're like really stressed out. It's just kind of like all over the place. It, it looks very different on the lines on the screen of what's happening with your heart. Wow. Cool. That's so cool. Okay. So we know that for you, breathwork was a huge shift for the fight or flight. Was there anything else you wanted to add around how to get someone out of fight or flight that you use with your client? I mean, that's kind of one of the places that I just really like to start because it's, it doesn't require any equipment. You can do it any place, anywhere. You know, I have certain tools that I teach also from body talk. There's something called the cortices brain balance, which is amazing. It's like a technique that again, all you need is your hands to be able to do it. You don't have to go buy anything or, you know, like do something special. And maybe we can link to that in your show notes. There's like a little video that I have. I'd love to do that. Yeah, definitely. We'll link it. Okay. So it's something free that we can link in the notes and that they can watch and it's something you use your hands. 
Right. You do a little, you're holding different parts of your head and you're just tapping over the top of your head, over your heart and over your belly. And it's very simple to learn, very, very effective, but you know, without the visual, it would be hard to teach it. So that's why it might be nice to just link for people so they can check that out as a short little three minute video that I have. Oh, absolutely. That would be fabulous. And I definitely want to watch it too, because, you know, we are constantly exposed to stressors. It's not like we can just get rid of stress, but we have to figure out what our, I always say it's like, what's our stress toolbox? How, how do we manage this? Like, how do we get ourselves back into our body and out of our swirly headspace, <laughs> which is where yes. I spend way too much time. So I love the idea of using this tool from Body Talk, which you just kind of slipped in there. So do you want to explain what Body Talk is? Since I know that's part of your practice. Yeah. So Body Talk is a kind of an energy healing modality that really is diving deep into the stories that our bodies are telling with the symptoms, because it's like, basically our bodies don't have words to talk to us. They have the language of symptoms and sensations and, you know, and it would be more convenient. I always say if, if we could get, you know, a little email from your body saying, Hey, you know, that thing that you keep eating repeatedly, like you're actually really sensitive to it. Maybe you should stop or, you know, you're super dehydrated all the time. Please drink more water. But instead, what do we yeah, get? Yeah, we don't we have the, that. We get the upset <laughs> stomach or the, the headache or, you know, like the different symptoms. Oh, when that, I would love that. <laughs> Yesterday or two nights ago, I ate some, I ate at home. Like, I don't know if something I ate just had a bacteria on it, but I was like, oh no. And my gut was like a mess. Oh. And I'm like, why? You know? And I'm just like, I wish that you could talk to me. Like exactly what you're saying. Like, I, this doesn't happen to me this often. So I want to not be in this place. It would be great. It's like kind of like talking to a baby. No communication <laughs> skills. That's so yeah. frustrating. Yep. <laughs> and then we're so conditioned by kind of society in general, you know, to just be like, oh, well, don't be curious about it, right? Go grab a Tylenol for your headache or, you know, take some Tums if you have an upset stomach. You're just shutting down the communication without getting the message. So the body's like, um, hello, I'm trying to talk to you. Yeah. I, I always say like we live in a, in a pill for an ill society, like a this for that, like a quick fix. We're always trying to band-aid the solution, but that doesn't actually get to the root of why the symptom's there. So I love what you're saying about this body talk. So you were saying it's really talking about the story our bodies are trying to communicate via symptoms. And then what kind of results do you see people have doing body talk? Um, I've seen incredible things happen. Like one of my clients actually has been having some heart issues, which is something I haven't actually worked a lot with before, but this is kind of more fresh in my mind recently. And she was possibly going to need one of like a trans aortic valve replacement, I think is the procedure that she was going to need. And she was having symptoms like almost daily of being like dizzy. Her It was hard for her to get a deep breath. All of these, you know, kind of scary symptoms. And we did a couple sessions. She's been kind of a long-term client. We did some sessions on her heart and her symptoms basically completely gone or, or very minimal. And she went to the doctor and it went from, they were talking about doing that procedure in three or four months to the doctor said in October, like, I'll see you in May and we'll check on you then. So it was like, whoa, that was pretty amazing to just see, you know, her body be able to shift and to heal. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that story. That's a really big one. Cause how scary is that? A surgery for your heart? I mean, 
maybe other than brain surgery, it doesn't really get, any get much scarier than that. than that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 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 I love this because, you know, one of the things we talked about at the beginning guys about what do we need to kind of work on optimal health. And I think Lynn is talking about, you know, getting out of fight or flight, reducing toxic burden, shifting our negative thoughts and releasing trauma. And something that I want to share to a client, not so much on the ones that you just shared, but the the next one, which is reducing toxic burden. I had a similar situation with a client who was told she was going to have to have surgery for endometriosis and that mm-hmm. she had definitely had endo. Mm-hmm. And she was having all the classic symptoms, the back pain, such debilitating pain with her periods and heavy cycles and she's always had them and she has PCOS. So she was like, well, I guess that's just like the next thing. Right. Right. But in the meantime, like she met me and she decided to go all in on her health and like jump into the she health experience. And she's four months in. Okay. And she lives in the UK. So anyone with universal healthcare knows it takes forever for you to get a doctor's appointment. So she's right. supposed to go this month for the endo thing. And she cancels her appointment because she no longer has that kind of pain anymore. It was so exciting because I was like, yes, oh my gosh, we reduced the toxic burden in her life. We did talk a lot about stress for her and fight or flight. And we did talk a lot about releasing any stuck energies and and things like that. Just for her, the main thing that we focused on was mostly toxic burden. So I think these things are so important and you you have to work on all of them for most people, right? (laughs) For sure. So, oh my gosh. Wow. That's amazing. So would you say that for you, body talk is your main modality that you use to help release trauma or is there other things that you do for the trauma relief and unresolved emotions? It's primarily body talk. You know, sometimes I I'll bring in a little bit of hypnosis to help reprogram the mind around certain things as well. And, you know, hypnosis is kind of the newer part of my practice. So it's, it's fun to see how it kind of comes in and gets combined. Um, Cool. (laughs) I want to work with you. You're hired. (laughs) Well, could you talk a little bit? We've talked about this a little bit on the, on the podcast, but I'd love to hear from your experience. Like what's the importance behind addressing trauma as part of the healing process? Like how does this show up in the body? Yeah. Um, So our bodies, I mean, they, they remember everything and, and anything that we don't kind of deal with and handle and process, it shows up in different ways in our health, in our body. So, you know, emotions can be stored in different areas when we don't feel our emotions. I mean, I've done this at times. I'm sure everybody has. Oh, I'm too busy to to feel my sad right now. You know, like I'll just stuff it down and, you know, or not deal I'll, with it. I'll stuff it down with a box of Oreos or numb out <laughs> in some way, right? Like exactly. you're, you're uh, good at numbing. <laughs> very much, very much so. Yeah. And so whatever we don't feel and whatever we don't deal with, it's like our body kind of holds it as a record for later. Mm-hmm. And then that's when like sometimes even just stuck emotions can be when pain comes out of nowhere where we're just like, where did that come from? I didn't hurt myself. I didn't do anything that I should have a pain in this area. And all of a sudden it hurts. I mean, that was actually how I found body talk was because I had that same thing happen to me. I had pain out of nowhere without a physical injury. And I was like, what the heck is this? Yeah. Like, uh, oh, what's going on? I don't understand. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, there's a lot of good books out there, but the body keeps the score is one that comes to yes, mind and yeah, for sure. all the science behind that. And it's, I feel like it's becoming more and more talked about to the point where people are understanding that this is not woo. 
you're literally energetic being (laughs) actually like your table is made up of tiny atoms that are hovering and vibrating like (laughs) everything has an energetic footprint so if we don't deal with it and we don't deal with our energetic health then it can get stored you know in the body Mm -hmm. I love I love that so okay so you're using hypnosis you're using body talk for that and I mean you're probably a pretty good example before you found this of what happens when we don't deal with the trauma. Yeah. Or when we deny our own emotions. I mean, I, I truly looking back at what happened and why I got sick, like part of it, I attribute to, I was making myself miserable in this graduate program for three years. And, you know, my body started to actually talk to me in that time period with some less scary type symptoms, you know, or it was just like having panic attacks and anxiety. And I had migraines when I was a teenager and they went away and then they came back. So all of those were kind of my body's way of saying, hey, like maybe you should pay attention to the fact that you're doing something every day that you don't really seem to love. Like you seem really unhappy. in your life. Yeah. Like, you know, I always think about we can either deal with the symptom while it's whispering to us, or we have to deal with it when it's screaming. (laughs) Right. I mean, gosh, I was the same way. And oh man, I wish I could have known what I know now, you know, about that, like with the IBS for freaking seven, eight years. And then the Hashimoto's and being in this like miserable relationship that was so abusive and my voice was being Mm -hmm. silent. So, so of course I end up dealing with Hashimoto's and like a thyroid issue where my voice is not expressed all these things. You know, it's interesting when you go backwards to see how you ended up where you are and to take some radical responsibility, I think of your actions in that, and then to move through it and release that is important. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. was important part of my journey for sure to look at like, hey, you know, you were just out of fear, basically continuing with a path you didn't like because you were too afraid of an unknown. (laughs) Yeah, an unknown entity. And yeah, living our life because of fear is going to result in these things getting trapped. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, yeah, I see it all the time. Oh, I love this conversation. One of the things I know that you talk a lot about is like your thought patterns. And this has been coming up a lot this week. I was talking to a woman in my DMs actually, and she was saying how she's been working. She worked with two different, sounds like really knowledgeable practitioners around her IBS and her SIBO. And she was like, but I've been doing this and I don't really feel like it's doing anything. And I just feel desperate and hopeless. Mm. and I said, well, are you getting enough support? She's like, yeah, the the person's like messaging me every day, and I was like, okay, so it's not like she's not getting support, and she's getting the like supplements, and she has this diagnosis and whatever, but she still feels desperate and hopeless, so I said, hey, like, have you ever really thought about maybe shifting the way you think your life's going to turn out into shifting your identity as someone who's not a sick person, who's someone who's not dealing with IBS, who's someone, um, but even removing the not, like just saying that I'm a healthy person or I live in a comfortable body or anything like that. And she's like, you know, I've never really thought about that before. And I said, you know, honestly, supplements are great. (laughs) Nutrition is great. But if you are believing that you are going to have this, which is what she was saying, like even after this protocol and you're desperate and you're hopeless, then that's oftentimes where we will continue to lead ourselves. So, and that's a hard thing to say and hear because you're like, oh, screw you. Like, you know, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) but it's like part of taking responsibility for shifting our habits and shifting our identities and shifting our thought patterns so that we can truly come to a full place of healing. So I'd love to hear you talk about this and what you've noticed in terms of shifting thought patterns. 
Yeah. Well, I think what's coming to mind is I've, I've done a lot of reading on, you know, the placebo effect versus the nocebo effect. And it's a topic that really intrigues me because how do people heal basically through the power of, you know, believing that something will heal them. In fact, last night I was just reading something in a book that was talking about another example of, you know, the placebo effect and, and people being given kind of a fake treatment and yet believing, you know, this would cure them. And it did, you know, oftentimes as much as the actual, you know, the pill or the injection or whatever they're testing. And to me, that's just, when you look at that, that's the true representation of the power of what we believe. Like if you believe something will heal you, and in this case, it doesn't have to be something outside of you, like, or it could be the supplements and, you know, the protocol that you're on. If you believe that, then that is recreating your body chemistry. I mean, I love the work of Dr. Joe Dispenza and how he talks about our thoughts create our different biochemistry and, and create all of the signals in our body. So if you're walking around believing, oh, I'm never going to get better. I'm hopeless. I, you know, I just might as well give up. Well, that's what's going to be reflected by the pharmacy in your brain that's pumping out all these chemicals. But if you start believing, you know, yeah, I'm going to heal myself. This is going to get better. I'm every day I'm getting better and better. That's what's going to start happening in your chemistry. And that's what's going to start changing, reactivating different genes and stuff like that. So fascinating when they can actually look at that with science and figure out, you know, people thinking certain thoughts can actually do all of these different things to your genes. Yeah, I think that's incredible. And I guess that kind of it's belief-based change. Like what you believe is what you become and your thoughts become your beliefs, your beliefs become your actions or whatever the flow of that chain reaction is. And so, you know, you talk a lot about epigenetics and do you believe that the thought is part of changing our, how our genes are expressed? For sure. Yeah. I think it's a big part of it. One of my favorite books is The Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton. Mm. And I think it's so awesome that he, you know, went from this medical background as a doctor to like really going in this direction of studying the power of our thinking and, and how it affects our health. Yeah, that's, oh gosh, Bruce. So yeah, I'm dorking out. I'm going to get to be at an event he's at in June. So that's so exciting. Bucket list. Yes, bucket list. <laughs> Can you, um, as we kind of come to close, we dropped a word in there that we've talked about, I think only one other time on the platform, which is epigenetics. I think we talked about it early on when we were doing a podcast with someone who does genetic testing and talking about how we have so much more control um, mm-hmm. than we think. So could you could you explain the study of epigenetics? Yeah. So I don't know that people know what that is. <laughs> a lot of people don't unless they, they kind of have gone down that rabbit hole. And it's a really cool rabbit hole. So you might want to check it out. <laughs> so basically, there's different markers that activate our genes. This is part of our biology. Like I love the analogy one of my teachers uses. If you think of all of your genes as like a recipe book, and how do all of the different cells know what recipe they need? Because, right, your muscle cells don't need like the recipe for your liver cells or your brain cells. They need muscle cell recipes. So there's literally these markers that go on that, you know, mark off 
what doesn't need to be seen by that area of the body. And then that leaves open what areas that information needs to come from. So that's kind of the basics of the biology of it. But what happens with toxins and traumas and stress and, you know, all of these different factors in our lives is those markers can start to come off where they shouldn't be coming off. So a gene turns on when it shouldn't be on. They can, you know, be put on and turn off a gene that we need. So it's this whole different manipulation of what's happening in our bodies and in our genetic readout, so to speak. I love that you brought this up, especially linking it to toxins, trauma, and stress, just because I'm in, I'm like I mentioned, in the biology of trauma course with Dr. Amy, and it's been fascinating to learn more about how all of this is connected and how our literal DNA can be affected by our right. environment. And our environment meaning our traumas, our stress, the chemicals that we're exposed to, the you know, lack of sleep that we're having, the food we're eating, all of this can turn on and off those genes. And so what that means, again, to use the word three times in one episode, <laughs> radical responsibility. When we know what affects our genes, we can take steps to support our genes, right? Because exactly. what is the statistics now in terms of, isn't it only like 10% of the time your genes are going to dictate your future or something? Even it's a, even like 5%. Some people even say it's only one or 2%, you know, depending on who, who you're looking at, but it's a small percent, you know? So saying, oh, you know, grandma had this disease and I'm going to have it, or mom had this and runs in my family really isn't all that true for most people. You know, even, even something like the BRCA gene, just because that you have that gene doesn't mean it has to become activated. Mm -hmm. So it's like the potential is there, right? But if you live a really healthy lifestyle and you try to manage your stress and you deal with your trauma, that gene might never get activated and you, you might be perfectly healthy and never have breast cancer. Mm, wow. Yeah. And that's pretty intense to hear too, right? Because we're told like, oh, BRCA, got to get, you know, mastectomy, right? That's like right. Instead of clear. looking at, hey, maybe if I look at my lifestyle and make sure that those genes don't come on, maybe, maybe that's a route that I'd rather go than having major surgery and completely changing your body. A hundred percent. There's one other topic that I know you would said you wanted to talk about, and maybe this is a good way to close, is just how we can work on reducing our toxic burden, because obviously that's something that can turn on and off genes as well. And toxicity can cause certain things. So what's your opinions on reducing <laughs> toxicity? Like how extreme do you go? What kinds of areas do you look in? Um, I mean, I think it's really important, obviously, to think about like the foods that we're eating, like trying to eat as clean as we can. That's probably something that most people are familiar with. But one thing that kind of came across my path, I would say maybe like five or six years ago, is just how many personal care products we have that, you know, you walk in a store and for years I used to think, oh, it's on the shelves. It has to be like safe. Somebody has to have regulated this and make sure that oh there's God. not carcinogens in it. And then you come to find out that the last law was made, I can't remember, 1938 or like some sometime Something like ridiculously ridiculous. unhelpful for us. Yeah. It's exactly. Like far, far, far in the distant past, there was a law made and it restricted, I don't know, like 17 chemicals from personal care products, some tiny tiny yeah, number. I think it's 17 versus in the UK and in, in Europe, it's hundreds of chemicals are banned that the yeah. US does not ban in personal care products. Yep. 
So, you know, just knowing when I found that out, I was like, holy crap. I mean, I've been very sensitive to certain things and fragrances my whole life. So I've always been kind of careful what I use. But then once I found that out, I was like, oh, it's really important to think of like where you're sourcing the lotion you're putting on your skin or, you know, cosmetics you're using on your face, whatever it is that's coming onto your skin is getting absorbed right into your bloodstream. And that's, I think, an often neglected area when we're looking at toxins. Everybody's thinking about diet, maybe like getting a water filter for, you know, your water, which is great too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe an air filter for your house. But if you're putting all this stuff on your skin, that's an overlooked spot that you could be getting tons of toxins every day. 100%. And it takes time to shift over your personal care products, guys. But, you know, there's an episode um, we did around, I think, sunblock, toothpaste, and shampoo, I think like we just covered those, but think about it. We have so many personal care products that we can be tapping into our moisturizer, our lipstick, our chapstick, our (laughs) everything. So yeah, definitely taking a look at that. That's a huge important factor. And it took a while to transfer everything, but once you make the transfer, then you already have that. And then you just keep buying the thing that is clean and not giving you more toxic burden than you need to. Right. Yeah. And just, yeah, baby steps your way over there. You know, it's like, okay, I'm just going to figure out what lotions are better. You know, like, let's just switch all the lotions. I ran out of lotion now. What Mm. should I use? Yeah, absolutely. So in summary, we really talked about, you know, your, I guess, four areas, the thoughts that we're having, the toxic burden that we have to deal with, the fight or flight, stress response, nervous system, and trauma. In order to dealing with those four things, you found to really help build up health. For sure. I'm not a nutritionist. I mean, I really believe food is important too, but that's not my wheelhouse. So I tend to focus on those areas with people. Mm, I love that. Well, so where can people find you, Lynn? How can people work with you? Do you have any information that they can find you, a website or... Yeah. So my website is heartfirehealingllc.com and I've got lots of cool little freebies on there. I just did a guided hypnosis audio that I released last week, which is I am healthy and resilient. So you can get that Mm. as a little free gift. If you've never experienced hypnosis or you want to focus on that area of, of health and healing, it's really a great little 15 minute recording that you can check out. Amazing. I would love to link that into the show notes. And I think we also have a freebie from you as well. The stop feeling frustrated by your symptoms and start understanding what your body's telling you. Yes. Yep. I have that up there too. Sweet. Well, we'll, we'll definitely link those two. And there was something else you told us to link. So we'll, we'll put all those in the show notes um, for (laughs) sure. So you guys can get all these amazing free resources from Lynn. And thank you so much for your wisdom and time today. Yeah, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Yeah, me too. Cool. Well, all right, everybody. That's that's it for today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of the She Talks Health podcast. And if you loved this episode, please, please, please go follow Lynn. Um, we're going to link all of her stuff into the show notes. And if you love this episode and you think it could help somebody, please send it to them. We're all about sharing free resources so people can get well. Um, and we do that through a lot of really positive reviews. So you can go and review this podcast on iTunes and leave us a review and a comment. And we would just so appreciate that to get the word out. So thank you again for listening and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. I hope this episode got you one step closer to achieving your optimal health. 
If you liked this episode, please spend a few seconds to rate it so more women can find this resource. Be sure to tune in for more women's health support next week on the She Talks Health podcast. And in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at She Talks Health. I have an open door DM policy. No question is stupid and I'm always here for you.